Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. Welcome to the Victorious Souls podcast with me, Danielle Burnock, your host, that lady on the internet who loves you at DanielleBurnock.com, connecting you to the love that heals. And today I have with me Clint Hatton, and he is an author, a motivational speaker, a personal development and leadership coach, and the founder of Big Bold Brave in McKinney, Texas. And we're going to get into all the things. Thank you for being with me today, Clint. It's just, I can't wait to get into your story. You have so much to share. Oh, thank you, Danielle. It's been my honor to get this thing set up. We had a chance to chat before we uh, decided to do this call, and I'm I'm super excited to talk to you. Uh, like I said, you have so much to share, and you founded Big Bold Brave after the death of your son, Gabriel. Yes. But you were no stranger to trouble before that happened. You had a <laughs> whole lot of trauma and other things that went wrong in your life. Can you Bring us up to speed a little bit of some of the things that you have been through before that. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, because it, it's when it's your own story, you don't think that much about it. But I remember somebody asked me that one time, you know, just like you just did. And and if you write it out as a list, it's like, wow, that's that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just didn't it didn't always feel that way. But you know, I think for me, it's funny. I grew up in Southern California, uh, which I loved. You know, back in those days, I'm 57, so that was quite a few minutes ago, uh, but it was, you know, it was a great place to grow up at that time. And, you know, sunny weather, I, I played sports. So, you know, I love football, baseball, and I felt like I had, you know, a pretty normal life. I would say we were probably, you know, middle-class, maybe lower middle-class. We didn't have a ton of money, but we didn't want for anything. So life was good. And then, you know, went through some pretty tough times around 11 ish. Um, my parents had already been married for over 25 years. They had me pretty late wow. and, um, some really tough times hit. My dad ended up having an affair and through that ended up moving out. And, uh, this, this little tidbit I'm giving you lasted you know, about two years total, but ultimately he moved out. Things got pretty ugly. Um, you know, they had gotten married when my dad was 18 and my mom was 16, you know, they were from a wow. different generation, you know, coming oh, out yeah. of the Korean, Korean war and that kind of thing. And so, you know, that was all she knew. And so she did, just didn't know how to cope. And so drank really heavy during that particular time. And my brother uh, is eight years older than me. So he had already moved out and lived, I think, like eight hours away. So it was just me and my mom. And, you know, I wasn't wow. equipped to really cope with that. And but in a sense, I became her counselor. And I say that only in the sense that, you know, she would talk to me about all this stuff. But, you know what did I know? I didn't know anything. I was just a kid. Okay. Yeah. I want to go back outside and didn't want to have this conversation. I just want to go play, you know, but anyway, ultimately, you know, my mom ended up with 
suicidal ideation, tried mm. to take her life a, a couple of different times. Uh, and actually with me twice, there was one incident wow. in a speeding car that we spun out when she had drank too much. And, and uh, fortunately, we both obviously survived that. We didn't even hit anything, which was pretty amazing. And then there was wow. another time with a handgun that she was threatening to to kill herself. And you know, it was, it was a rough time for all of us. Now I want to, I want to say this before I finish that story. You know, my, my parents reconciled, they ended up married for over 65 years. They both passed away about eight years ago. And we had a tremendous relationship during my adult years, but that, that was a really, really tough season. And it, and it caused me to begin to uh, make some really bad decisions for myself in terms of coping. So, you know, even though I was an athlete, a lot of alcohol and drug abuse started by the time I was 13 years old or so. Um, and that really carried forward into my adult life, um, even to the point where and I don't know, you and I had talked a little bit beforehand, but I don't remember if I shared this with you or not, but I was a professional salesperson in my 20s. Mm. Uh, so I had the the shirt and the tie and the look and all that, but I did meth for nine years, which, wow. you know, a lot of people are pretty shocked by that. Um, yeah, and well, as, meth is so dangerous now. I, I know that drugs yeah. now, they make them different than they did back then because I did drugs in the past too. And it's right. like meth now is a different story. I think so. You know, I mean, it was pretty destructive. I had friends back in the day that, you know, ha have that more stereotypical look, you know, the black rotted out teeth and just kind of drawn face. And mm. so, you know, I didn't experience any of that. Ultimately what happened, Danielle, and it's, kind of a crazy part of my story. I'm just grateful for it is I, um, I actually, it was after the last time I used, I was in a previous marriage. Our marriage was a complete train wreck in every way. We were both, you know, just not healthy people. And I was a terrible husband. And so during that time, we decided to party together one last time, although we didn't know it was going to be the last time. And I just woke up the next day and I just felt like, it's not who I want to be. You know, I didn't like the way I felt. I didn't like the fact that we had spent, <laughs> I think, hours waiting to get the stuff before we could go have a good time. You know, all the things that go along with that crazy, you know, drug lifestyle. And so I just made a decision. You know, I call them courageous decisions now, but uh, I just said, I'm done. And I was done. And it was wow. that, you know, so, so there was that, you know, and then I think, you know, for me, um, faith didn't come into my life because that's a big foundation of who I am. And, and we'll probably get a little bit more into that, I'm sure. But that didn't happen until I was 31. Mm -hmm. But when that happened, that was really when I feel like more than anything, my mindset began to change, mm -hmm. uh, even about who I was. You know, even when we talk about, you know, repentance, that's to think differently, to think like God yeah. thinks. And so that's really what began to happen. I began to really just think differently and value, you know, myself, like I could actually have an impact in this world, you know? So I got on a pretty good track, but that, <laughs> that didn't stop the punches of life from coming. Right. So ultimately uh, after my divorce, my, my previous wife divorced me because I had expressed I wanted to go into ministry and that just wasn't something that she was interested in and wanted to do other things. And, you know, that was fine. And so, so she moved on. I moved on a couple of years, well, th almost three years later is when I got married to my bride now of almost 20 years, Amaryllis. And man, things were awesome. But, you know, there's a part of my story <clears throat> and Gabriel's story that's tied into even that. I actually am not Gabriel's biological father. Oh. Um, it's not something I say a lot, not because I'm ashamed of it or, you know, because I, I want to avoid talking about it, but just 
I've been involved in his life since he was really even when he was in the womb. And so I never have thought about him any differently than just being my son. But ultimately we had met, we had had a friendship, but I was ready for a relationship. You know, she was not. And, uh, you know, due to some circumstances of, you know, just some choices she made, she ended up pregnant and with Gabriel and, uh, you know, Amaryllis has got her own amazing story. She really does. Um, I mean, she's my best friend, but she's one of the strongest women I know. And she had to go through some pretty rough times, even making that decision and, you know, carrying him during that time, Mm -hmm. the things that she had to deal with, uh, especially in the church world was pretty ugly, but she, but, but for her, it was, it was a, uh, a crossroads. And so, you know, it could have taken her down and away from her faith. And instead it actually sent her in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And she chose to just really give God her all, you know, and so it turned out amazing. So I have an amazing wife, but um, anyways, but she was, she was pregnant when Mm -hmm. we first started to actually date. There's a whole story behind, you know, she had just a little fling with this guy in another country when she was on a vacation and, you know, he never wanted anything to do with anything. So he was never part of that life, but ultimately we got married when Gabriel was 16 months old and uh, he was always my son. And so, Mm You know, but that was a tough time for both of us, just, you know, kind of working through that and getting to that point where we felt confident that, you know, we were the right match for each other. And, and that, you know, I was not, I'd never been a father. I didn't have any kids from my previous marriage. So that was a shock, Danielle. It really was. I remember, I remember babysitting him the first time while we were engaged and she brought him over and dropped him off to go run some errands and I need to change a diaper. And I was like, I have never, I've seen it in a movie, you know? <laughs> Anyway, that's kind of a different story. But anyway, I, I just uh, I was thrilled to be his dad. And, um, you know, it was awesome. But then we had some tough, you know, tough times after that with just even trying to have children again. You know, Gabriel was actually born. Um, he was born six weeks early. Mm-hmm. I may have the math wrong on that one. I get the two confused because we actually have two that were preemies. But he was, uh, you know, born pretty small. I think it was like three pounds, six ounces, if I recall. Oh, wow. um, so he was very small. So then um, we had a miscarriage. Mm, for that. And yeah, you know, there's so many people. This is what's so sad about that. Because I know there's, there's who knows how many of your listeners that have experienced the same thing. It's one of those things that you don't talk about, you know, a lot. Most people will never bring that up in a conversation unless somehow it just comes up, you know. Um, but it's, it's such a common thing and it's so hard and, and some people, you know, unfortunately have multiple. Um, yeah. It's kids. amazing how common it is and how little people talk about it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I have two grandbabies that are, okay. I have two grandbabies in heaven, but my son and his wife, they had two miscarriages. Yeah. Gosh, I'm sorry. It's hard. You know, it's funny. I, I don't think I really caught, or at least I'm not conscious of knowing anybody until after we had one. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we had all these people that we knew reaching out. Hey, I'm so sorry. You know, I, we went through the same thing. It's like, you did. You know? So, you know, so that was tough, but we, um, you know, we just made a decision because she, she does not handle pregnancy. Well, Amaryllis got preeclampsia with Gabriel. That's why they had to take him early, which is a uh, super I, high I was chuckling because I say that about myself, that I didn't handle pregnancy well. I was not laughing at your wife. <laughs> yeah, I was oh, laughing because no. I could relate. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And there's all the, the natural reasons why pregnancy is tough enough, right? But just her body doesn't react well right. to it. So so then we had the miscarriage. And then, you know, we're 
like, we're going to try again, you know? So we did uh, pretty quickly against the doctor's advice, but we just felt like we were supposed to. And so we did. And so our middle son, Joel came after that. And so that was, you know, that was a different experience, Danielle, because he made it all the way full term. And, you know, he was not a monster, but he was, I think around seven pounds, something like that. Yeah. But even that ended up being a pretty crazy challenge because in before she went in, cause they, she tried to deliver full term and after like 12 hours, uh, she just wasn't budging past like a three. Mm. And so they decided, okay, it's time. And then they were trying to give her an epidural and they literally they're getting ready to roll her in to have a C-section and he, he touches down low and he's like, can you feel that? And she starts screaming. Yes. Yes. I can still feel it. You know, wow. so, so the epidural wasn't taking and finally they got that to work. And then ultimately, so they do the C-section and then coming out of it, she wasn't coming out of it. She wasn't waking up. Wow. And they finally did. They actually pulled me out of, I was in the, uh, the room, you know, with Joel when they brought him in to clean him up and, you know, the umbilical cord, or excuse me, not the umbilical cord, but just they allowed me to help clean him up and put him in his first diaper. And they came and got me and asked me to come help him. And so I go in there, you know, here I'm leaving what seems like a really joyful situation. And they're telling yeah. me, okay. And you could tell, you know, you know, doctors, we have a lot of doctors in our family too. You know, sometimes you can tell, right. That they're being professional. They're not trying to panic anybody, but you read the body language in their face yeah. and you could just see the concern. And they're like, we need your help. We need you to talk to her. We need you to touch her. We need you to try and keep her awake, you know? And so that went on for a little while and obviously she did come out of it, but it was a pretty, you know, scary, scary. Oh moment. yeah. Yeah. And then we were done. Like agreed. We're done. <laughs> this is it, right? We're not doing this again. Two's a good even number. I love it. You know? And then five years go by and she starts, she actually never pressured me at all, but there'd be every time we'd run into a baby, you know, you could see it. <laughs> she told him, I'd be like, oh, you're looking kind of comfortable with that, you know? And, and ultimately we had the conversation and, you know, I mean, I was not a young dad, so I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, you know, but we, we decided, okay, we'll, you know, we, we were using birth control at that time. So we're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll stop it and we'll just see, you know, what happens. And so she ends up pregnant again. And <laughs> this time, the first three months again, it's like, oh, great. Things are going great. And then there's a side story of that, that that's too long. I don't want to take you guys okay. on a rabbit trail, but we were living in Washington state during this time in a friend of ours home who had actually moved here to Dallas because our home in Louisiana, where we were trying to move from, wasn't selling. It was during the housing crisis of oh. 07, 08. Yeah. No, it was just a disaster. So we had finally decided we have, we lived for over a year with Gabriel and Joel out of suitcases, all of our belongings, furniture, everything was still in Louisiana. So one morning she's feeling pretty good. And it's the morning I'm taking a trip to Louisiana to go meet the movers, stay there for a couple of days, get things in order and come back. By the time I landed, which you got to connect by the time you get there, it was about an eight hour trip. Uh, I call her when I'm driving home from the uh, airport and she was on her way to the hospital. She had very quickly, her her blood pressure skyrocketed again to 220 over 100 something. 
Um, and so ultimately to kind of fast forward, they had to change her to a special NICU hospital and gave her some shots. I think it was a type of steroid, yeah, which was really more for Liam because right. at this point he was at only 27 weeks. Wow. This sounds so, so familiar with my daughter's story because okay, she had so the gonna... same thing. Horrible preeclampsia. She swelled up like a balloon. Oh my goodness. And yeah. And they yeah. gave her steroids and she had a, a migraine from it. And they were, she had, they had her on a magnesium drip and yeah, they had they to take to the baby to it. save her life. You know, she was yeah. very early like that as well. So how, That's long, exactly how right. long did they, they, do this with her that they have to take the baby yeah well what happened was is so exactly what you described was with gabriel that was the preeclampsia this time it accelerated into full-blown help syndrome which is when your That's major organs got, begin to yeah. shut down yeah yeah exactly so so what happened thankfully for this because you know i land i landed i mean here i am in louisiana and now this is going on and she had to even change to a new hospital so a different doctor that we had met with you know it was just a nightmare oh. So I was on, I literally got to my home at 8 p.m. that evening, and I was on a flight by 7 a.m. the next morning. So I wasn't there very long. And they the steroid shot did work. It bought us 48 hours. So I was able to get home or back into Washington State, be with her. And, yeah. then, and then they had to take Liam after that. And so that was a, a scary thing. I was in the room with them, uh, you know, during that. And it just, it was frightening because, you know, he came out, he was one pound, 14 ounces. Um, then just the whole thing. It was just a, a scary experience. Oh wow! Fast yeah. forward, you know, ultimately he had um, like every other kid that was born that early. They give you this long list of these things that likely could happen. You're going to have to have therapy for probably years and, you know, all this stuff, speech therapy, all these different things. And so we just believed and had some faith that, well, that doesn't have to be his story. So we're going right. to believe for something else. And he's, he's done great. He, awesome. how did, old is he now? He's 13. He's a black belt in martial arts. Um, very, very strong, <laughs> very, very smart Has no issues with any kind of, as a matter of fact, he's very verbal. <laughs> so, so all ended very well, but definitely, you know, a scary time of our life. Oh yeah. So how did you, overcome through that time one point in your story you're talking about faith did you have faith at this point where did that come in with having the kids did you, yeah did, did that help you yeah, through that. that time did you have faith at that time or did you come to faith after that or how did you That's how a, did you make it through all this trauma <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well the faith came when i was about 31 so you know all the early stuff and um you know, my own personal struggles with drug abuse up until that point and the failed marriage and, you know, just um, train wreck really in many ways of a life. I did not have faith, but I got faith at 31. Um, and that's when things really began to shift for me in terms of even being able to cope with challenges that came, mm -hmm. which is, I'm glad you asked me that because as I think about it, what was interesting about the day I went to church when I ended up giving my life to God and, and, you know, becoming a person of faith. I did not go to church to find Jesus or religion or anything else. I went for one sole reason. I was at that time I was involved in a network marketing company. It was a nutritional company and my upline were 
all Christians. <laughs> they were all believers. Uh, a couple of them extremely successful financially in this company. So, you know, there was that, that they, they had managed to just really do well, but there was, there was another factor. It wasn't the money. What I noticed about my upline in particular is they had challenges just like anybody else. You know, I mean, life was punching them in the face at times too, mm -hmm. but they always seemed to be able to maintain a level of peace and calm through it. And that made me very curious. And so, you know, they had asked me to go to church before and I just, no, you know, as a matter of fact, when my upline, she was like success magazine feature kind of success. Oh, wow. so she, yeah, she was very successful, but, but she was a believer. So a lot of times when she would train me over the phone, she would say, oh, by the way, do you have a Bible? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I own a Bible. <laughs> it's, it's a paperweight. Yes, I have a Bible, you know, but she would, she would read me a couple of scriptures and she wasn't preachy or anything. She, you know, wasn't overbearing trying to change me or anything. She just interjected scripture here and there. So she would ask me to go to church, but it's like, no, but there came a point where that's what I saw. I just thought, okay. I don't know what their secret sauce is, but this is something else they do. So I literally went that day because I just wanted to see, okay, this is a part of their life. Let me just go check this thing out and see. Curiosity. Yeah. 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 That was it. You know? And, uh, and I had a, a very, very, you know, strong, um, I don't know. I don't know quite how to explain it for your listeners because it was a, a pretty, crazy experience for me, but I just, I An had experience. A That's a good tangible, word. Yeah. Very tangible, uh, even felt like literal physical, you know, touch from God and, and just being introduced to him. And I felt this love that was so real. And, you know, so I had a really strong encounter just where I felt like, okay, this, this nebulous God that I have said that I've said, I believed in, you know, it's not like I was not an atheist, you know, I'd always said I believed in God, but now he became real, you know? So that, that really became huge and, and a, a foundation for some of the things that we have been through that I can't imagine. I mean, Danielle, I remember being in the NICU unit because you've, you've experienced that. Yeah. I remember being in the NICU unit. And at that time, this was during the N1, uh, how do they say it? It was the bird flu. I can't think of the virus number <laughs> now. N1H1 or something? Yes, N1H1. It was during that. And so it was a lot like what we all just went through with COVID in terms of my wife and I were the only ones during the entire two and a half months that Liam was in the hospital that could even visit him. No wow. grandparents, my, my sons couldn't visit him. So there was all that going on. And it was, uh, it was the largest NICU unit of that region, just meaning there was like 50 of those, you know, little cocoons. So it was, it was a big NICU unit. Mm -hmm. So we would see other parents, you know, come in and out and you, they had some ground rules. You actually weren't allowed to engage anybody else. Wow. You were supposed to just not talk to anybody and, you know, leave them to themselves. And oh, the isolation, just, oh, the feeling of isolation. Danielle, I I'll never forget. And there was one couple in particular that just, I can see them right now, even in, in my mind's eye. I just remember watching them. And, you know, you got the Brady bell going off. If, if people don't know what that is, that's when you're, you know, their brains, their brain and, and their major organs don't know how to communicate yet because they're not fully developed, right? They're supposed to be in the womb another couple months. And so that Brady bell going off is when their brain 
and their lungs are not connecting and basically they're forgetting to breathe. So it's very scary. And it happens mm -hmm. dozens of times a day for yeah. weeks, you know, and I remember those would go off and you'd see the look on these parents' faces and it just, they just look so hopeless, you know? Yeah. So we would pray silently, you know, for them, um, but you couldn't engage them. And just, so anyway, I just say that to say, you know, with some of the stuff we've been through, um, it's still hard. You know, your faith doesn't keep you from pain and, and difficulty, but it definitely is something that, that is so real that keeps you moving, keeps you uplifted, gives you that hope of something that you can hold on to that I can't imagine going through any of the things we've yeah. been through without that. Wow. That's, that's a lot. Let's <laughs> see. I wanted to bring that for people to hear, you know, cause then after this, you had how much time went by from you had Liam until you lost Gabriel, how much time went by between then? Yeah. So Gabriel, uh, his accident was on September 23rd of 2019. So at that point, Liam was nine. So about nine years or so. Yeah. yeah. Nine wonderful years. Oh yeah. I mean, we did, we, we've had a great life. You know, I mean, there's ups and downs like anybody, you know, uh, much, much less dramatic than what we just talked about for sure. But, you know, we still had, you know, financial struggles at time. You know, we, we were in many, you know, very early on and nobody gets into that, you know, to get rich. That's not how it works. So, you know, we had some financial troubles here and there and things like that, but, you know, uh, all in all, you know, we were, we were living our dream, you know, which was to be a family and to do things together. And, you know, uh, our boys were healthy and strong and gifted and all those things. So there was a lot of hope for the future, you know? Awesome. So tell us about Gabriel. Tell us about Gabriel. What was he like and what led in, led up to the day that he had his accident? Yeah, Gabriel. So as, as your listeners now know, you know, I, I um, wasn't fully immersed in his life until he was about 16 months because that's when we got married and, and actually started living together. So, but he, <laughs> oh my, he was brilliant from day one, just really, really smart, you know, and actually all three of our boys are actually, you know, we're blessed. They're all very intelligent in their own way, but he was one of those ones that it just, whatever he wanted to put his hands to just came easy, you know, wow. it, even school, you know, school, he just cruised. He ultimately ended up graduating a year early as well. He just, it just was easy, you know, anything you want to do. And so, but he was very, uh, he had a great communication skills at a very young age. Um, which, <laughs> which was really cool in some ways. And at times very frustrating because, you know, <laughs> like six, seven, you know, we'd be like, okay, he's going to be either a CEO because he has to be in charge of everything <laughs> or he's going to be a lawyer because mm. he loves to debate and argue. And I like to say facts didn't always matter. He just wanted to win, you know? So, mm. but, you know, he was very, uh, very much a go-getter, you know, we could say it that way love life, very adventurous. And so, but what happened ultimately is around the age of eight or so, he went up in a small aircraft with his uncle Danny. And for him, it just like got him so excited. He just, he came back from that flight and he's like, oh my gosh, I want to fly a plane. I want to be a pilot, you know, but he's eight. So we're like, <laughs> okay, oh. we'll sign you right up. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, one, we've got time. And two, you know, you're eight. So, and we didn't say that to him, but you're thinking, okay, and next week you'll want to play in the NFL. And the week after that, you know, you'll want to be a firefighter. Who knows, you know, but with him, it wasn't that way. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he want he didn't necessarily know immediately that he wanted that to be a career, mm-hmm. but he never never let go of I'm going to fly I am going to fly and so then by the time he was a freshman in high school we had a pretty unique opportunity here we live we live in uh, McKinney Texas which is just a little bit north of Dallas there's a four-year aviation program in our school district in the high school which is pretty unusual there's not a lot in the country so he was able to start the education component of it really early and then he also joined a club it was called Tango 31 Aero Club it's little club that's at an airport, uh, municipal airport, really close to our house. And so that was founded by a guy named Kevin Lacey, who just wanted to mentor teenagers that were interested. He had to work really hard. He didn't get much support from his parents, you know, when he was young. And so he wanted to do something for teenagers. And so he started this club. And, uh, and by the way, some of your, some of your listeners may have heard that name and Kevin Lacey flying. He's pretty well known. He actually was the star of a show called Airplane Repo, which mm. was on the Discovery Channel. And some so some of your listeners may actually have seen that show. So Kevin was Gabriel's mentor and he's a he's a character. Great guy. We love him to death. And so he he's the one who provided uh, not just Gabriel, but this club with these opportunities. They had to give the sweat equity. They had to work on planes. They did oil changes. They painted. They um, they eventually got to the point where they were even doing overhauls and all kinds of stuff, oh, learning wow. everything about an aircraft. And then once they were old enough, they could start earning airtime. So at 16, he soloed for the first time before he had his driver's license. Wow. Weird. Yeah, totally weird. And then uh, by the time he was seven, 17 is the youngest you can be and actually apply for a private pilot's license certificate. Wow. So at 17, he took the test, passed with and colors, passed his check ride, and he was a pilot. So wow. he achieved his his initial dream, you know. And uh, ultimately, what happened was is you know he was gaining hours because that's what it's all about at mm-hmm. that early stage. And on September 23rd of 2019, he had a friend who was attending the University of Arkansas, which is north of us. And uh, the mom actually, it, it was a really good friend of his, and the mom had said, hey, you know, is there any way you can fly her back, you know, get her back to school quicker? Because she was here for, of all things, a funeral over the weekend. And, uh, you know, can you get her back to school quicker so she doesn't miss as many classes? And he's like, sure, you know, of course, because he wanted hours. So he took her and they landed safely. And then on the return trip home, he only got about 20 minutes. Um, it was nighttime, which was part partly what he needed to do at that time. He needed more nighttime mm-hmm. hours, but in uh, the NTSB is who does the investigation on these things. So mm-hmm. it took a couple of years before you find out it's a long, miserable process waiting. But ultimately what happened is he was coming through that mountain range there and an unexpected weather system came through and he ended up suffering from spatial disorientation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of your listeners may know what that is you probably all actually know what it is without knowing the term, you know, Kobe Bryant is very (laughs) famous. Yeah. Kobe Bryant, very famous with with their helicopter crash, his pilot, Mm -hmm. which who was in a multi-million dollar, you know, uh, helicopter, same thing. It's when you think you're flying up, you're flying down, or you think you're flying right side up, you're upside down. You just lose your horizon and you don't, you have no, uh, you just don't know. And so he flew into a mountainside and, and lost his life. 
Mm. And so it was, um, you know, a devastating blow. Oh yeah. Oh my goodness. How did you find out? Did you find out right away? I mean, wow. It was a long night, Danielle. Um, again, a lot of nuances and details that probably are too long to go into, but yeah. ultimately the night started at about eight, eight 30 in the evening. That was when Kevin called my wife. I was out running errands and I walked in and I saw her on the phone and, you know, so you, you just know, you know, yeah. you see this look and you hear certain words and yeah. knew something was wrong, you know? And so at that point, all we knew was cause he, you know, Kevin tracked him anytime any of his pilots were in the area, you know, he was tracking them on a, on an iPad device with some software. Mm-hmm. And he says, I, I, I know he went down. I don't know where haven't been able to, I mean, we know the region, but mm-hmm. don't can't pinpoint the location. Um, and we can't, I can't reach him by phone. He's not answering. And so that's how the night started. And then it just kind of had this ebb and flow of confusion and misinformation. You know, I, I spoke to the sheriff's department that was in charge of the search and rescue because it was a fairly remote part of uh, a, a part of Arkansas and uh, kept getting different words. So we were tracking it on our phones even because the news up in Fayetteville were following this as well. Mm-hmm. And so they're reporting something that, the sheriff's department is telling me, no, I can't confirm that there's, you know, there's no cell phone coverage. We have no communication. I don't know where they're getting their information. So we're just, you know, what's going on. So we're doing all we know to do, you know, we're just, we're praying, we're declaring scriptures, we're, you know, worshiping at different times and, you know, just doing everything we knew to hold on to our faith and to just believe for the best. And, but ultimately um, a couple of things happened. One had a knock on the door at 1 30 a.m. and it was two uniformed uh, McKinney police uh, officers. That's never a good thing. No. And you assume, you know, we've all, if, if we haven't experienced that in real life, you know, you've seen it in a movie, right? Mm-hmm. And that's about what it felt like. I felt like I was in a movie. I didn't want to be a, a, you know, a part of, and I stepped outside expecting that they've sent these guys to give us the news and it turned out they didn't know anything other than he had been in a crash and they wanted to make sure that that sheriff department had my correct contact information, mm-hmm. which was frustrating because I'd already called them three times prior to that and talked to the, you know, the person that was at the, the office and made sure they had numbers. So it was, it was like my heart plummeted, but then I gained a little bit of hope again because, okay, we don't know yet. You know, that's exhausting the up and back exactly. and hope and down and done yeah. and over. Oh, that is so exhausting. So it was a roller coaster, you know, the, and the news had reported there was a single fatality. So when I called, they said, no, we can't confirm that. Uh, anyway, ultimately at three 30 AM, we got finally our first call from the sheriff's department, not me calling them. And that's when they said the coroner has been on site and he is officially deceased. And, you know, and that's turns out they knew they knew all along. They knew when they found him at like 11 o'clock that night, they just would not tell us because their policy was not to say anything until the coroner had actually stamped the time of death. So uh, it was a a long, awful night, but ultimately, Yeah. yeah. So how did you guys survive through that time? I mean, and you're doing such amazing things now. How did you come out of that? The grief just had to be so overwhelming. I mean, he had succeeded in his dreams. And then the very thing that brought him so much joy is how he died. I mean, the emotional landscape there is just 
boggling to me and I'm not a first party person to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. how did you guys survive through that to get to where you are today? Yeah. I think, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that we talked a little bit about my previous history because I, I do think that in some ways, um, you know, some of the things that we went through as a family, you know, even Amaryl Shettis, <laughs> she's been through it, you know, it, several years before that she had a spiral fracture of her femur when we were out on a lake in the middle of nowhere, Washington state with, uh, when we were trying to wakeboard. And so she had a very serious thing. She couldn't walk for five months or drive a car. So even as a family, you know, we had to come together and figure things out, you know, Liam couldn't jump on her, you know, Joel and Gabriel had to help in other ways. So some of those experiences, Danielle, I do think, you know, aid you to some degree in terms of you've already created a pattern of the family coming together. That's awesome. Because um, when crisis happens, yeah. generally one of two things happens. People come together or they explode. It's like one yeah. or the other. There's not generally an in-between. Don't there could yeah. be, but generally it's one or the other. So, wow. Yeah. I agree. And so, but you know, that doesn't prepare you for what we were experiencing that, that oh, yeah. night, that morning. And so, you know, I think what, what ultimately happened is, is, you know, we let the boys sleep through the night. We didn't put them through what we were going through. You know, we just decided we were going to let them sleep in. And when they came out, you know, it was a school day. It's a normal day. That's the thing about tragedy for you know all your listeners is when it happens, the world stops and yet it also well, keeps it? going. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It and is. So, it's a bizarre feeling. I'm so, glad you let so, them sleep. So they were at least rested to deal with it because there was no point in waking them up to do that. It wouldn't no. benefit them in any way. Yeah. I, we didn't think so either. So we let them sleep in. And when they came out, my, um, my mother and father-in-law that live here in uh, pretty close to us, they were already here, which was, you know, the first sign to the like boys. This comes where, Wait a minute. Yeah. What are they doing here? Absolutely. Especially because my father-in-law is a pain management physician and oversees a large medical facility. And so for him to be there that morning, they knew something's what's up, you know, Yeah. but you know, what happened, Danielle was, you know, I'm searching for the words. I'm thinking, how do I, I call it the impossible conversation. How do I even approach this? Mm -hmm. And I really felt like God gave me a path on it. And so I just looked at them. This was after I let them know what happened and you know, there was screaming and bawling and uh, whatever horrible emotional reaction you can picture in your head. Yeah, that was it. I mean, it was yeah. awful. Um, but once, once their emotions settled down, I said, okay, I said, so boys here's and, and to Amaryllis, I said, here's, we have two choices. And I, cause I've seen this, I didn't say this part, but I've seen this over the years of helping. I've been, you know, I was in pastoral ministries before I started doing this for 17 years. I've been in hospital rooms with a loved one dying when I'm praying with the families and, yeah. and the fallout afterwards. So I'm not unaccustomed to that, but it's different experiencing yourself, of course. Oh, for sure. But if you witnessed it, you have information. You have information. That you can I had access. <laughs> yeah, I had a base point. And the base point, I think for me, that was most important was I recognized that there were so many people that that didn't process this well. And that marriages, you know, marriages implode and people end up in divorce and their families are just completely splintered. And, and, you know, Emeril's and I were resolute that that was not going to happen to us. And so I, but I felt like that morning, I just, I had the path. And so I turned to them and I said, we have two choices. We can choose to focus on for the rest of our lives, the tragedy itself, the way he died, 
you know, the, the facts that we're not going to, you know, get to experience the birthdays and the celebrations and seeing what he does for a career and all those things. Um, we're still going to feel those things and experience those things right. as far as moments. Right. But, but if we focus on that, if that becomes our main thing, then we're going to become shadows of who we were supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. There's always going to, we're going to, we're going to allow that pain that we're feeling today to dictate our future, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I said, that's not going to happen to us. We're going to choose life and what that means for us. And now, you know, your listeners already got a little bit of a snapshot of Gabriel. You know, I, I, I like to joke that, you know, everybody loves t-shirts with sayings. Now, if I bought one for him, it would be what's next. You know, he just, it was just, he was adventurous. He went after it. He mm-hmm. taught himself to play guitar because that's what I want to do. He became a photographer and had some, there's one you can kind of see in the corner there, just amazing photographs. You know, he, he went after it and encouraged his friends to do the same. We got incredible testimonies after he passed away of all these different people that he inspired. And, you know, we, some of it, we had no idea. Wow. And I said, so, so here's, here's the deal. I said, the only way we can honor Gabriel really is if we choose to live the way he did. And if we choose to honor him by attacking life our way, now it's going to look different. We have different gifts, you know, oh, yeah, we have different definitely. talents, different, different, you know, pursuits, whatever, but that's one thing we're going to do. And we're going to do that as a family. Big bold, brave didn't quite exist yet. The name, the phrase. Uh, I said, and then the second thing is, is we don't know. And this, this is what I feel like has really been critical. Even now it's, you know, it's been just a little over three years. There's no getting over, you know, this Daniel, there's no getting over this. That's not even a goal. We're never going to get over it. Our lives were changed forever. There's a mm-hmm. crater size hole that only Gabriel can fill that nothing else can fill. And it's never going to get filled. Um, so that's a reality, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, we knew that we had to stay tight together as a family. And so the second thing was, I said, we don't know how it's going to look for us grieving. You know, I can't tell you how I'm going to feel from day to day. You can't, we don't know. We may be angry. We may be sad. We may get close to going into depression. We may, you know, all these different things. Right. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk this out together and we're going to do it as a family. And here's what that looks like. If I need to cry, I'm not going to go hide. You're going to know it. I'm going to do it in front of you. And mom's going to be free to do it. And if one of us is angry, we're not going to try and talk each other out of the anger of the moment of the moment. Yeah. We're going to allow them to process, you know, whoever it is, we're going to allow them to process that emotion. And so if mom's crying, I'm going to hold her, but I'm not going to sit there and go, don't cry. Don't cry. It's going to be okay. No, don't I'm, tell I'm, I'm, people I'm, to not cry. Yeah, no, it's no. therapy. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's, that's the decision we made. It's like, this is how we're going to do it as a family. And I remember saying, you know, I don't, I don't know if I said it quite this way that morning, but it's a quote in my book now is we, we just made the decision that it was okay to not be okay, mm-hmm. but it was not okay to not be okay alone. We knew isolation is a killer. And so we walked that out, you know, from day one. And it wasn't perfect, Daniel. We are not perfect people. We didn't walk this out perfectly. I know. Perfect doesn't exist. Only one thing's perfect. That's God and and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, there were times where we had to recalibrate to that, you know, and, and, okay, remember, this is the agreement we made as a family. We're going to, you know, we need to talk this out. 
maybe maybe Joel carried it for a week and didn't say anything and was feeling something, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but part of that was asking each other what I call there's there's something that I like to talk about a lot called courageous decisions. Mm-hmm. I believe life is full of them, right? There's lots of courageous decisions we got to make. But this was one of them. You got to make a courageous decision to open up and talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. But we also had to make a courageous decision as a family to be willing to ask courageous questions mm-hmm. and be okay with the answer. Yeah. You know, because there may be a given day, and this this all happened, right? So there may be a given day where I'm just I'm okay. I'm feeling good, you know. And then I look at Amaryllis and it's I don't know. She may not be feeling great. And so you you got a couple of choices there, right? You can just kind of choose to ignore it and see, and I'll just wait and see if she brings something up. Or you can ask the courageous question, are you okay? And, and listen for the answer. Yeah. And, and listen and just, for the answer. People exactly. ask things like that, like, mm-hmm. hi, how are you? And then they walk away. <laughs> we have to listen yeah. for the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And so I may ask her on a given day and, and then I'm not okay. And she would cry and we'd talk it through. And then we would, you know, there's something that I think we all, we all know this intellectually, but we're not necessarily good at um, executing it in our lives. And that is our lives are a constant exchange of emotions. It's the way we were created. Mm -hmm. We go from different emotions on autopilot all day long, every day, our entire lives. But there's also those times where you actually are conscious of it and you can choose to switch emotions. Like I can be angry and then I can stop myself and I can breathe a little bit Mm -hmm. and I can choose a different emotion that better serves me for that situation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we just, we allowed each other to feel pain. We allowed each other to feel sad, whatever it was. And then once we allowed ourselves to feel that emotion in that moment, then we would exchange it for another one. It may exchange it for joy. It may exchange it for, you know, whatever, something else. Yeah, because it creates a release. Like if you have a tea kettle, you know, people, I don't know if people use them anymore, but they would have have like a whistle thing on them, you know? (laughs) We do. And if if it didn't have that, if it was just closed, it would blow up. It has to have that release of the steam. Otherwise it will blow up. So releasing those different emotions, it empowers you to have the strength to make that courageous choice to choose the other emotion. Cause now you've processed the one that was so intense. You didn't shove it down. So yeah. it would blow up later. You let it out in a constructive way. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And you, you probably have had, um, you know, some more, <clears throat> more medical experts or mental health experts on this show. And I'm not going to get into that because that's not my expertise, but we all know that are in this, this lane, right, of personal development and helping people, that there's tons of data out there to support what you just said, yeah. that we, we know that there are, t- there are an enormous amount of negative consequences in our bodies, in our mind, that will, that will ruin our lives for years and years and years if they go unattended. And sometimes we don't even know it. Yeah. If I could, Danielle, maybe I have a really quick story that's an example of what that actually looked like. If I could share that. Sure. Because I and think then we'll get into people, the big, big, bold, brave. Yeah. Because I think sure a lot of times we'll get into a big, bold, brave of how that came about <laughs> and in your book and stuff. So story. I love first. that. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I want to share this story really quick because a lot of times, you know, we have conversations like this and, 
and we're talking about things that are really helpful and true, but then you don't necessarily know, okay, but what does that actually look like? You know? Yeah. And so one that's example why is, the story is important. I just finished yeah. reading a book that was full of a lot of talking about without the stories to make mm. me understand. So I felt really kind of lost a lot through the book. So I now what? <laughs> skimming it a lot because I'm like, well, where's like the point? And there were some right. stories I'm like, oh, that was really good. And it's like, well, we're talking about this and about this and about this, but what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What? How do I do that? You know? So, and this is just one example, but you know, this was just actually the 4th of July this last summer. So, you know, a few years down the road, but, you know, pain, the, the pain will never be gone. And it's not even a goal of mine because the pain exists because of the love I share with my son. I mean, it's my son, you know, so the pain, never feeling that is not the goal, but the goal is to not allow the pain to trap me in that and, and dictate my life. Right. Right. So very real example, 4th of July, we're down in Florida where we have family. Her dad has a boat. We're out on this Island, uh, just outside of, of, uh, Tampa. And it's a beautiful day. You know, again, it's the 4th of July. It's a big party. There's a bunch of boats lined up, including ours along the beach. And so people are, they've got their floaties and they're bouncing in their floaties and, you know, everybody's got their beverage of choice, whatever that is. And, and I, I didn't have a floaty, but I'm just bouncing in the water with everybody else and we're having a great time. And then all of a sudden, and I, I honestly don't even know what the trigger was and you don't need one when you lose, you know, a loved one. But I just began to think about Gabriel and it just made me sad that he wasn't with us. And so, you know, tears just, started to stream down my face. I had sunglasses on, so it wasn't totally obvious. And I just knew that I needed to feel this. And so nobody knew what was going on. I literally just kind of bobbed in the water mm -hmm. about 20, 30 feet away from my particular group of people. You know, nobody even noticed because the music's going and everybody's yeah. having fun, you know, and for about 30, 40 minutes, I just, it wasn't like this over, you know, like weeping loud and, you know, travailing. It was just mm -hmm. tears just continued to stream down my face for probably 30, 40 minutes as I just thought about him. Um, I remember, you know, just kind of saying under my breath, you know, the things I was thankful for because gratitude is a powerful force as well. Oh, yeah. And so I just allowed myself to feel that. And then I realized, okay, it's time. It's time to shift. And I exchanged that sadness for joy. I re I just kind of bobbed my way back over to where everybody else was at that time they were eating in the back of the boat. I jumped in the back of the boat and I joined the party and I exchanged that sadness for joy. Wow. And so as people are listening to that, you know, I recognize now if I was in a boardroom or doing one of my corporate talks or whatever, that's not the time, right? Mm -hmm. So you do sometimes have to discern the moment and know whether or not you can allow yourself to feel that in that moment. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is a lot of times people may be in a situation where they can't. And then instead of finding that window of time later that day, or maybe the next morning to where they sit in it and allow themselves to feel it, they just don't do it at all. Mm. But that was, you know, one tangible example for me that, uh, and I told my family about, it. I told my boys about it. So, you know, they, they, they've been made aware and we've given each other permission to have the same kind of moments. Yeah, that's very cleansing. I There's a study out there on tears, which I have mm. shared when I've taught grief recovery classes, that tears have a different um, 
chemical makeup, if you look at them underneath a microscope, there's a woman mm-hmm. who did a study on them. Depending on why the tear comes out of the body, it has a different shape. Wow. If it's from anger or sadness or cutting up onions or whatever it is, all the different things, it is just phenomenal how they look completely different from that source because tears carry an enzyme out of the body as well. So when you were weeping that day, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you were getting the gift of it was carrying those grief enzymes out of your body. It was a cleansing experience that you allowed yourself to have because not letting that come out is where it gets toxic and your body gets sick. That is really good. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that information for the rest of my life (laughs) because that's, that makes total sense. That's exactly what my experience was. Yeah. You could Google um, a study on tears. I believe the lady's name was Rose something. You could find the photographs of those tears. It's just, I've shared it on my blog before. It is amazing. Just absolutely amazing. It's like how God has made us. Yeah. I, I, the science is just, it's so extraordinary. I just love it. So let's get into big, bold, brave. How did that come about? If it wasn't (laughs) so right away, how did it come about? And you have a book with it, but you founded big, bold, brave. So which, the, which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> the chicken or the egg, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the the phrase itself, so the, the morning after the accident, we were contacted by a couple of local news stations. One of them was NBC, and they wanted to do a story. And uh, the, the reporter that called me from NBC, her name was Katie, super sweet. Turned out she was a person of faith as well. And uh, But I told her, I'm, there's no way. We can't do an interview. And at the end of that conversation, she said, I just want you to think about one thing before you give a final no. We're going to do a story because of his age. You know, it was just a big deal. You know, he was three months shy of his 18th birthday. He's this pilot. They're going to do a story. So she said, if if we do the story without you, it's going to be a report on his death. If you do a story with me, you can talk about the way he lived. Wow. Which you already know from what I've told you already. It was, you know, that was what we had said we were going to set out to do. So I didn't say yes. I, I said, well, I'll let you know. And we hung up and had a conversation as a family, you know, shortly thereafter. And my other father-in-law is the one who actually, he was here and the most surprising one to come to that conclusion for a variety of reasons we won't get into. But he said, I think you have to do it because if, if this is how you're going to, you know, live out your life with this idea that, you know, you're going to celebrate who he was, this is, seems to me your first chance to do it obviously yeah. horrible circumstances right? Uh, and timing, but that's what happened. So we, I called her back and she ended up in our living room a few hours later. So this is less than 24 hours, you know, after he passed away and uh, the, the inter- raw emotion. <laughs> yeah. And the interview itself, you know, there's, she did a three minute segment, which I still have to this day. And, you know, so I can watch it, but it's one of those things where I couldn't even tell you without that video, what happened during that interview, it. it was all just a big blur. Yeah. But somewhere in it, I said he lived his life big, bold, and brave. And I don't remember saying it. But then what happened was she, you know, when they come anytime, if anybody that's involved with video knows this, that, you know, you don't always air everything you cut, you edit, whatever. And so when we watched the segment that night, because we wanted to see how she, you know, ended up with the final story, she chose to not air what I said. But at the very end, as she was closing out the story, she said, and Gabriel's parents want to encourage you to live like Gabriel, big, 
bold and brave. That still gets me, Daniel. And uh, so there was just something in it, Danielle. There was just life. I mean, that's really what I feel it. Like there was life in that mantra. I felt it when you were saying yeah. you were feeling it, but yeah. I was feeling it also. Let's just pause for our listeners mm-hmm. to encourage you to live yeah. big, bold, and brave. Think about that for a minute. Like say those words out loud to yourself right now. Big, bold, mm-hmm. and brave. What would that mean to your life? You, you yeah. who are listening to me right now, me and Clint, you're listening to this story. What would big, bold, and brave in your life look like? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, so it wasn't a personal development company at that stage. It wasn't a book. It was really just some language mm-hmm. for us to recalibrate to, you know, to, to you know, our attention. If we found ourselves kind of getting off track or, you know, not living it out according to the values that we had stated, then, okay, I'm going to live big, bold, brave, you know, but uh you know, it began to get life after several months. Uh, I just realized this could be more, you know, I th- one thing that we don't need to delve into, but just for your listeners probably have already done the math, you know, COVID hit three months after Gabriel passed away. So the entire world got rocked shortly after his death. And so, yeah. you know, so we were grieving during those months, dealing with COVID, all that stuff. And the whole world suffered major loss of all kinds, yeah. right? Um, and so I just began to realize, man, there's something on this. What can I do with it? What can I do to help other people? And so initially it just, I decided all those years I've been a pastor all these years, but I'd really wanted to branch outside of that and have an opportunity to reach and help other people who maybe didn't have faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was why I launched Big Bull Brave, the personal development company and began to take on some one-on-one clients but then over time, you know, it just, I'd, I'd been told many times over the years, people were always telling me I needed to write a book with some of these stories and all that. And, and so it took a couple of years, Danielle, uh, and that's not very long. So for your listeners, I just, I want to acknowledge that two years is not a long time. I'm not saying that, oh, it's been two years, so you should be able to write a book. I know some people who wrote a book, you know, months after mm-hmm. that was not me. I, I didn't have the capacity for that. But for me, after a couple of years, I felt like, just, it was God's timing. I felt like I have the capacity now to sit mm-hmm. down and write this thing out and see if I can help someone. And Howard Bihar, who wrote the forward on my book, um, most of your listeners probably don't know him by name, but they'll know him by what he did. He was the uh, former president of Starbucks International. He's the one that mm-hmm. helped Howard Schultz blow up Starbucks into the world dominator that they are. And uh, I had a conversation with him, a brief conversation. We'd been connected through a podcast of all things. So that was interesting. <laughs> He's the one who told me, he gave me the best advice because I hadn't decided to write the book yet until I was on this conversation with Howard. And he said, listen, you need to write this book, but don't worry about writing it to become a bestseller. Don't worry about writing it to make money. He said, I want you to write it like you're writing it to one person, just to help one person. Yeah, I remember impact, telling him. Write the book for impact. Yeah. I remember telling him I can do that. Yeah, so do you have a copy day, of your book? Can you hold it up and I do. <laughs> and what's the subtitle of it? It Big is How Brave. to Live, yeah, How to Live Courageously in a Risky World. Wow. Because life is going to punch you in the face, you know? So it's gonna punch you in the face. Yes, it will. It, it will. And sometimes it's gonna be, you know, not 
not so hard of a punch. And sometimes it's going to be one that, that you lose your breath and maybe even get knocked out a little bit, you know, but that's what sent me on this journey, you know, to, to reach people through the book. And, you know, I think what I want your listeners to know about the book more than anything is it's, it's not a grieving book. You know, a lot, a lot of people have written beautiful. There's, there's some great books that are solely on the grieving process out there. And so there's plenty of that that you can tap into. This is not that, although it does include a lot of some of the stories I just gave you, which includes our grieving process Mm because it's not the same for everybody. Right. But ultimately it's a book about living by a set of values of who you want to be and what do you want to become and not allowing, you know, especially with what happened with COVID and this is not a political statement. It's not one side or the other. Everyone agrees that fear became just dominant across our globe and people are afraid of all kinds of things, not just COVID, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a book to help you get past fear to be willing to even take risks, you know, sometimes. And for me, the risk was I'm going to leave behind this comfortable position that I've had doing what I've done for all these years. And I'm going to start a business and I'm going to try and reach a new audience. And, you know, we're just going to see how it goes, you know? So where can people get your book? Can you get it yeah. from your website on Amazon bookstores where? Absolutely. So right now the book is available anywhere books are sold. My official launch is going to be February 1st, but you can get the book now. What I'm encouraging people to do is, especially for listeners here in the States, uh, if you go to my website, bigboldbrave.us.us, and you can find everything there. It's kind of one-stop shopping. So you can find the book. You can find out about my corporate speaking engagements, um, coaching, all that kind of thing. And what I really want people to do is subscribe on there to my email list because I've got some new projects coming later this year, a coaching package, um, a a podcast, Stories of Big Bull Brave Humans, where we're going to share stories of people that have overcome and not just overcome things, though, but then serve people Mm -hmm. with that, you know. And so there's lots of new things coming. But your international listeners, please subscribe for that. I'm going to be sending out a a newsletter once a week, but for the book, you'll want to go to Amazon or one of the other online retailers just because shipping nowadays is crazy. So yeah, (laughs) definitely. So before we, we sign off here, is there anything you want to make sure that you get to tell the people that that they take one thing away from today Mm. that for them to hear, hear what you have to say right now? Yeah, there is. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it hit me right before you asked that question. You know, I think sometimes we hear other people's stories and sometimes it's positive in that we think, you know, oh, okay, I'm not the only one, but other times you think, but I'm not them. I can't do that. You know, and, and there's something super special about them. And I'm here to tell you, there's nothing special about me. I really believe, and this is on my website, that here's what I believe about all humans. I believe we all have three things. One is I believe that we were created to be courageous. I don't think courage is this nebulous thing. I think courage is something that God put in you that you just need to learn to tap into. So it's in you already. You are courageous. The second thing is we are created to be creative. We have a creative genius in us. There's something in every single one of your listeners that only they have. And it's probably something that they do so easily that they take it for granted and they think, oh, everybody can do that. And they can't. So tap into that. You were created to be creative. And and the third one is, is that we are created to have compassion. Compassion is in us. And we see that happen when tragedies happen, when hurricanes hit, 
you know, you see the best of humanity, right? Because Mm -hmm. we were created with the ability to be compassionate. And so I just want to encourage your listeners that you have all three of those things in you. And can life be tough? Yes. Are we going to experience pain? Yes. But you can push through it. You can learn to cope and to be healthy and to be able to employ those three things and really make a difference in the world around you. Amen. So how can people connect with you, Clint? Yeah, Danielle, the best way is to go to my website, which is bigbullbrave.us. Yeah, I know it's US. Everybody corrects me, but it's it's us for me because I believe we do great things together. So if you go to bigbullbrave.us, there you're going to find one-stop shopping. They can get the book. They can check out my speaking engagements, um, coaching, and also all the social media platforms. That way they can choose which one. But what I'd love for your listeners to do is to subscribe because I'm going to be launching a weekly uh, email coming up at the end of the month. That's going to include just some new things. Um, they're going to include this podcast episode, you know, different things that are going on with Big Bull Brave. So if they want to stay in the loop, that'd be awesome. If they're international, they should go to Amazon or any other online retailer for the book because they'll get better shipping. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story, all the raw and messy parts and the encouragement for everyone to sit in their feelings and to process mm. them and let the pain leak out of your eyes. So thank <laughs> That's you. Right. That's right. <laughs> and for our listeners, thank you for being with us today. And until next time, I love you. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening to the Victoria Souls Podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further, so please visit us at daniellebernock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you.